Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in the listen-only mode. Later, we'll conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you very much, Shanitha, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop, Planning Your Comfort and Care at End of Life. This is a very important workshop, and it's actually the first time we've offered this workshop, but it is not the last time. We're hoping to offer this regularly from now on. Um, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other organizations, and it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in this topic that we have so many of you on the call today. We have over 768 people on the call today, and you come from all over the United States. You come from all different regions of this country, and we also have international participants from Canada, India, Jamaica, Sweden, and Venezuela. So you really come from all over the world. It's a bit of a global call. Um, I'd like to turn your attention for a moment to all the materials that you received from Cancer Care. In those materials is information about our speakers and the topics that will be addressed. There also is information about all the different collaborating organizations as a resource for each of you. There is, of course, also an evaluation form, and I will ask you to take a moment at the end of today's program and complete that evaluation form. When you think about it, who but each of you can best tell us the programs we should be offering? Indeed, this program today is a topic that many of you have been requesting, and so we're able to offer it. And indeed, tell us what you want, and we'll try very hard. Um, we're planning many uh, programs for 2012, and indeed, it couldn't be a better time for you to suggest uh, topics for us to offer. Now, today's program is made possible by a charitable contribution from Bristol-Myers Squibb, and I really want to thank them for their support. Now, we have wonderful speakers today, and I want to start by introducing our first speaker, Dr. Charles von Gunten. Dr. von Gunten is provost of the Institute for Palliative Medicine at the San Diego Hospice. He's also clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego. And Dr. von Gunten is going to address an overview of healthcare decisions and planning at end of life, understanding palliative care, and the different care settings, home, hospital, and hospice. It's my great, great pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Van Gunn. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be a part of this call, and I'm speaking to you from the Cancer Center at the University of California, San Diego today. So those three areas, an overview of healthcare decisions, about understanding palliative care, and then something about care settings is where I want to go with this. In terms of healthcare decisions, I think the, the place I want to start is identifying that everyone, every patient, every family member can identify the, with the phrase, hope for the best, but plan for the worst. We all do it throughout our lives, whether it's with what schools we're going to, who we're going to marry, what jobs we get, how much money we're going to make. Um, the whole host of decisions with which we're faced throughout our life, um, we can hope for the best, but we also plan for what's likely and also have a plan for what's the worst. So in thinking about healthcare decisions for your cancer and for your cancer care, you can, you can be thinking and working on those levels simultaneously. The second point I make is that so many people get trapped 
in a in an either or kind of scenario. Either I'm a fighter or I'll be a quitter. Either I'm a winner or a loser. And certainly speaking from American culture, there is a strong value on being a fighter or being a winner. Those are those are characteristics of a human being. You don't lose that. Um, you don't become a quitter when therapies are not working in the way that you want. You aren't a loser. Um, you're a human being faced with serious illness and then the choices for you and your family. So that key point of uh, hope, hope always persists. But the object of hope, the face of hope changes. For most people, the, the hope starts with you hope it's not true, to hope it will go away, to hope to manage it, to hope to be comfortable. The sense of hopefulness needs to be a part of the care for, for the entire course of the illness. Now, the second point I want to make about this is overwhelmingly doctors in the U.S. are willing to tell you the truth if you ask. So in making healthcare decisions, expect that doctors are waiting for a clue from you. Most patients say they, are wait, they wait for the doctor to bring it up about what the diagnosis is, what the prognosis is, how likely the cancer is to be improved. Um, you need to take that, that role and tell your doctor how you want those, that medical information. Tell your doctor how you like medical information, how decisions are made by you and your family. Some people make them themselves. Other people have their family members involved. Your doctor will respond, but you need to take the lead. Then in terms of planning for end-of-life care, you need to take in the aspects that only you and your family appreciate, things that are, uh, that are unique to you, your financial responsibilities, your responsibilities for caring for children or for parents, where the money's going to come from. All of those things are part of your medical care. It's not just about the cancer. It's about how it affects you and your family. So if it's on your mind, you need to ask about it. It also needs to be based broadly healthcare decisions on what's of value to you. I always advocate for my patients to, to articulate to me what's important to them as human beings. When you have tough decisions, what helps you decide? For many people, it's, it's well, uh, it's important for me to continue to function in my role in life, or it's important for me not to be a burden on my family, either financially or I don't want them to take um, unnecessary time away. Those are very important things for you to articulate, as well as uh, to gauge for yourself, are you a planner? Are you the kind of person that likes a lot of information? Does your anxiety get better when you know all the possibilities? Or are you a person that doesn't want all the details? Those are things to know for yourself, communicate with your family and your doctor and everyone else. Now, moving to palliative care, palliative care is the newest development in healthcare to help people with cancer and other diseases and their families to cope with the pain, the symptoms, and the stress of a serious illness. So cancer affects you and your family physically in things like pain or emotionally in things like worry. Practically, who's going to wash the clothes? Who's going to shop for the food? Who's going to take care of others in the family? And finally, in the spiritual dimension, your sense of purpose and meaning in your life. Palliative care is an added layer of support. 
added to your regular team, added to your oncologist, um, surgeons, radiation oncologist, to help you and your family cope with the pain and serious illness uh, aspects and the stress on you and your family. Then finally, in terms of care settings, most people spend most of their time with their illness in their own home. There are ways to make sure that, that you can continue to have your care needs met at home. Moving to the hospital is something for um, acute problems, but then moving back home um, is the eventual outcome for that. And hospice care is a specialized program for care near the end of life um, when the focus is mostly on those comfort goals. I'm aware that this is an international call and hospice means different things in different places. In the United States, it's a team approach to care in your own home. Many people hear that word and they think, oh, that must mean it's time for me to die. The patients, I've certainly had many patients enrolled in hospice care for actually months and years because things didn't progress in the same way that we thought. The earlier one gets enrolled with a comprehensive specialist program, the better one is able to cope with the pain, symptoms, and stress of serious illnesses. In the United States, three-quarters of people die in hospitals and nursing homes, yet when Americans are asked where they want to be and where they'd like to die, overwhelmingly they say in their own homes. That means then that one needs to do planning, one needs to have these kinds of conversations, one needs to make sure palliative care is woven into comprehensive cancer care from the beginning. That leads to the best cancer care. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Von Gutten. That was an exquisite, really excellent presentation, and I know there'll be lots of questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. Um, our next speaker um, is uh, Dr. Nessa Coyle. Uh, Dr., uh, Dr. Coyle is a consultant in oncology, pain, and palliative care, and Dr. Coyle is going to address planning your comfort and care at end of life, pain, symptom, and comfort management, and how to describe your pain and discomfort to your healthcare team. It's my pleasure to turn the program over to Dr. Coyle. Uh, thank you, Carol. I'm also delighted to be on uh, this call and to participate in this uh, teleconference. Um, what I'm going to do is focus a little bit on end of life, but knowing that everything I talk about, about planning for your comfort and communication with your healthcare team, um, is important throughout the um, living with a serious illness, but especially important um, uh, towards the end of life. All of us are unique human beings, and we have spiritual psychological, social, and physical needs. And these aspects of, of all of our lives are very important to recognize and nurture, um, especially as life draws to a close when we face death. Being able to communicate clearly with your family and healthcare team about what's important to you at this time of your life, what you will worry about the most, and what your immediate needs are would be very helpful in ensuring these needs are met and that you live as well as you can uh, during uh, your serious illness and towards the end of your life. Just as Dr. Van Duchten said, you're the expert on what you need, and unless you tell us, don't assume that we'll know, because often we won't. For example, if you have troublesome symptoms which aren't adequately managed, the symptom can consume all of you and your family's energy and attention and cause a lot of anxiety and distress and distract you from things that are very important at this stage of life. 
because you are the expert on how a symptom is affecting you, the way you communicate that to your healthcare team can make all the difference in how well it's managed. So we really need to know how much a symptom is impacting on you as an individual or on your life. Let me give you some tips. If you have several symptoms, list them in order of importance to you. In this way, your most troublesome symptoms can be dealt with first. For example, if you have seven symptoms and your three most important symptoms are, for example, pain, difficulty in sleeping, and congestion, then the team will manage them in that order. Let me use pain as an example of how to communicate with your doctor or nurse or other members of the team. Any of you who have experienced this symptom will know how it can interfere with your ability to sleep, interact with family and friends, eat, and see life as worth living for whatever time you have left. So it's incredibly important that pain is well managed. There's a concept that I, I want to um, mention, and that's the, and it's sort of the basic principle of understanding pain. And this is a concept of total pain. And that word, uh, that description, total pain, was first used by Cecily Saunders, who was the um, really mother of the modern hospice movement in England uh, in the mid-1960s. So uh, the uh, physical pain, in a way, is the um, uh, tissue damage response. Uh, so this um, irritation or damage to pain-sensitive structures, which can be caused by the disease or its treatment. And then there's a suffering component of pain, the emotional, spiritual, existential, psychological, social, and financial, all of those aspects of living with a serious illness, particularly as that illness is advancing and one's coming towards the end of one's life. So those are two aspects of pain, the tissue damage and the suffering component. And they're very tightly um, woven together, but they're different and need to be teased apart because the management approach will be different. The other um, principle of pain assessment is knowing that you can often have several symptoms or cluster symptoms. So it's important that, again, you talk about the different symptoms to a healthcare team so we can help sort them out. But it does complicate assessment a little bit. So again, when Cicely Saunders talks about total pain, she said it's more than the physical pain and related symptoms but it's sometimes the impairments or the disabilities that go along with progressive serious illness. And the distress and upsetness with grief over loss and change, things are not the same as they were before, and one's life has changed, and how, how does one live in this way? Um, there can be social disruptions um, and uh, spiritual and existential distress. That's all part of, of total pain, which is important to talk about with your family and also with your healthcare team. When you're uh, communicating with your doctor or nurse or other members of the team, it's important that everyone uses a similar language, a common language, um, so that we all understand each other. So specifically looking at the pain, the physical pain, you'll be asked these questions. Um, or if you're not, you can volunteer them. Where is your pain? Do you have different sites of pain? And if so, list them. Uh, is this a new pain? Or is this a pain that you've had for some time but it's become different and severity has increased. How has the pain changed? What does the pain feel like? For example, sharp shooting, electric shock, throbbing, aching. All of this information will help arrive at a pain management approach. 
you'll be asked how bad the pain is, zero, no pain, or 10, the worst pain you can imagine. Or if you have difficulty in using that number scale, then words like mild, moderate, and severe. Um, and then what makes your pain better or what makes your pain worse? Other things that were important um, to, for the physician and nurse or other members of the team to know is the pattern of your pain. Is it worse in the morning, at night, when you move? Are you comfortable when in bed and not moving, but the pain increases when you move? Again, this will help um, the team arrive at a management approach. And then very importantly, how is the pain affecting your quality of life, for example, your sleep, your mood, your family life? And then what do you think is causing the pain? Uh, sometimes people with a history of cancer think that increasing pain means that their cancer is getting worse. And it may not be the case at all. It may be something totally unrelated uh, to the cancer. It may be associated with the treatment, or it may be associated with something like osteoarthritis. Again, if you've been treated for pain at the moment, you'll be asked, how well is the treatment working? How much of your pain is relieved? All of it, almost all, none, etc. And then very specifically, what treatment are you receiving? And are you taking any um, medication just across the counter, like aspirin or Tylenol or things like that? It's important that we know. And also, are you using um, special modalities, um, like special herbs and things like that? If you're taking around-the-clock pain medication, for example, taking a scheduled dose of, a, of an opioid at every eight hours or every 12 hours, does your pain start to increase before the sec next dose is due? So for example, if you're on a 12-hour schedule of controlled release morphine, does your pain start coming back on the ninth or 10th hour? If that's the case, then perhaps your uh, schedule will be changed to every eight hours instead of every 12 hours, or perhaps the 12-hour dose will be increased. And then are you having side effects from the medication, and what are they? Uh, indeed, it's also important to know, are you worried about uh, possible side effects of, the, of using uh, opioid drugs, narcotic drugs, such as morphine or methadone on a regular basis? Some people worry about addiction. Some people worry that if they use the medication now, uh, if the pain gets worse, the medication will stop working. And um, both of those are myths, so you don't have to worry about them. But if you are concerned, you need to talk about it. So what will help you to keep track of all these things I've talked about, because it's quite a list. And people find it very helpful for either they themselves or for a family member to keep a daily diary or log with your medication schedule, your level of pain before and about an hour after taking it, if it's by mouth, your pain at its best, at its worst, on average during the day, your activity, what makes it the pain better or worse, your mood, um, constipation, because that needs to be treated, uh, anticipated and treated, and the time of day that your pain either increases or decreases. Is it worse at night when you're thinking more and worrying? Is it worse in the morning when you get up and move around? Any side effects of the medication that concern you? What things you do other than medication to control your pain, such as relaxation, imagery, meditation? All of these things uh, many people find helpful. Do you have any other worries about your pain treatment or other symptoms. And then write down questions you want to remember to ask your nurse or doctor or other members of the healthcare team, either when they make telephone contact or at their next visit. In summary, make your wishes known about what's important to you at this time of your life, it includes identifying symptoms and worries. Uh, for example, it may be concerns about your family or 
um, how will your end be and will you have a lot of pain, things like that, which may be interfering with your comfort and ability to live uh, right at this moment and be at peace. Again, don't assume that your physician, nurse, or other members of the healthcare team will know if you're distressed by pain or problems with sleeping or any other symptoms or worries unless you tell them. Symptoms can be managed. We have the art and we have the knowledge to do that, the science. And worries and concerns can be worked through. Uh, the healthcare team is here to help you and to work with your family in every way that we can. This is about you and your family, and that's the healthcare team's focus. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Coyle. Just for these amazing suggestions to everybody, recommendations and working with their healthcare team so that they can get the help that they need. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. Our next speaker is Deborah Wolf. Uh, Deborah um, is a uh, senior attorney. She's an attorney with Legal Health, New York Legal Assistance Group, or NILAC. And uh, Ms. Wolf is going to address Know Your Rights, What Are Advanced Directives, and Healthcare Proxy and Living Will. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to, to Deborah Wolf. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm going to speak about advanced directives, which are documents executed in advance that become effective upon a person's incapacity. They address a person's right to decide what medical care they choose to receive and who they would like to communicate with their medical team if they become, a, become un, unable to do so. There's different types of healthcare advanced directives. And we're going to first talk about healthcare proxies, living and living wills. And it's important to remember that state laws vary regarding the requirements for valid directives. So it's important that you speak with somebody in your state who understands what their particular requirements are. So I'm first going to discuss healthcare proxies. The healthcare proxy allows you to name an agent to make healthcare decisions for you if you become incapacitated and unable to communicate your wishes to your doctor. They're usually simple to prepare and generally don't require an attorney. Um, for example, in New York, it's a simple form and it requires two witnesses. In some states, may require a notary. The proper execution of a healthcare proxy requires that the person have sufficient mental capacity to understand the purpose and implications of the document, and a person's capacity may change from day to day or even over the course of a day, depending on the nature of their illness, their fatigue, and the effects of their medications. So it's important that the healthcare proxy be executed while someone is able to understand what the document means. And although it's prepared when someone has capacity, it doesn't take effect until a person is unable to communicate their wishes to their doctor. So as long as you're able to make your healthcare decisions known, your doctor will discuss those decisions with you. Once authority commences and the doctor has determined that the patient is incapacitated, the agent they've chosen steps into the shoes of the principal and their authority may be limited by the language in the proxy or by a living will, which we'll talk about in a minute. An agent can consult with doctors, bring in a doctor for a second opinion, um, examine medical records and make medical decisions on behalf of the patient. If no health care proxy was signed, many states also have surrogate decision-making laws that determine who can make decisions for the pa a patient. For example, in New York, a surrogate decision-maker can be chosen in the following priority, spouse, adult child, parent, adult sibling, and close friend. 
but it's important to execute the healthcare proxy regardless as the law may have limits. For, an, for example, in New York, the surrogate law is limited only to hospitals and hospice, so it wouldn't apply in a number of circumstances. With these laws, the surrogate is usually the highest person on the list who's available and willing to make the decision, and the surrogate must make decisions in accordance with the patient's wishes, or if not, in their best interest. And if uh, there is no healthcare proxy and there's no surrogate decision-making law, it may require a court-appointed guardian, which can be a lengthy and expensive process. So it's important that a healthcare proxy be executed. When you do execute a healthcare proxy, you should provide your agent with clear guidelines about your preferences regarding your healthcare treatment and discuss your views and values with your doctor as well as your family and your agent. And your agent is obligated to advocate for your wishes, not decide what he or she thinks might be best for you. And you should choose an agent who's willing and able to meet this challenge. Um, and you also have the option of appointing an alternate agent. And again, it's always important to understand what your particular state law requirements are. Um, next, I want to talk about the living will, and this is a statement of one's wishes with respect to one or a number of potential end-of-life medical care decisions, and it can serve as a guidance to your health care agent, to a surrogate, um, or other um, health care providers, and it's different from a health care proxy in that the proxy chooses someone to make decisions while the living will sets forth what a person's wishes are. Um, a living will generally applies when it's determined that the patient is in an incurable or irreversible condition with no reasonable expectation of recovery, and state laws vary as well. Um, it's only valid for the medical situations it addresses, um, generally has to be witnessed by two adults. No lawyer is needed to fill out the form. And it includes decisions such as artificial respiration, CPR, artificial nutrition and hydration, and invasive procedures that would prolong life but not give a better quality of life. It generally also includes a do not resuscitate provision, but a DNR or do not resuscitate can also be prepared separately. And state laws vary regarding hospital and non-hospital DNR orders. A DNR orders affect only cardiopulmonary resuscitation, and they're based on the right of every competent adult to refuse life-sustaining treatment such as CPR. If you have a healthcare proxy, then the healthcare agent does have authority to make decisions um, about all medical treatment, including CPR, unless the healthcare proxy form states otherwise. And again, the healthcare agent must decide in accordance with the patient's wishes or if the wishes aren't known in accordance with the patient's best interests. And many states also have a surrogate list for do not resuscitate orders similar to the healthcare proxy surrogate law I mentioned previously. So it's, also, it's always important to understand your state law requirements. I also want to mention another important form that's useful, the power of attorney, and this is a form that allows an individual to name an agent to handle their personal affairs during their lifetime, including banking, real estate, and other financial matters. Uh, once signed, the authority designated in a power of attorney continues after a person becomes disabled or incompetent, but not after the person passes away. Then the form generally needs to be notarized, and the agent must sign as well, um, and the power of attorney does not cover health care issues. 
they generally take effect immediately, um, even while the, the writer of the health care of the power of attorney is competent, unless it's specifically written to take effect upon a certain event, such as incompetency. And the major benefit is that if it's executed while someone is competent, a power of attorney can often avoid the need to have a guardian appointed once that person becomes disabled. It will allow someone to have a, a person to help them pay their bills with insurance matters, benefits, whatever their needs may be. Um, but I always urge caution as the form does allow someone to con conduct business in your place, so it must be someone that you have 100% trust in. And then finally, I want to briefly mention wills, which is a document in which a person specifies how his or her property will be distributed upon their death. And I'm often asked why a will is needed. And if a person dies without a will, then the property passes pursuant to state law. And the state chooses the administrator, and the property passes by law. Wills must comply with state requirements to be valid, and those requirements are different in every state. And some states do allow for handwritten or what they call holographic wills. In order to execute a will, a person must be competent and free of any undue influence. And um, in a will, it also allows somebody to specify desires for guardianship of their minor children or to provide an income plan for children or adults who are incapable of handling um, money or you can set up trusts inside a will. Um, once executed, a will should be kept in a safe place, but not a safety deposit box. Make sure your executor knows where to find your will. Never write on your original will or mark it up, even if you want to make changes. And never modify or unstaple a will after it's been executed. Wills can be revoked. They can be redone. Um, you can even make what's known as a codicil for minor, cha minor changes, so you don't have to redo the entire will. I know this is a lot of information, but it's also important to understand what these documents are and how they can help both the patient as well as their family and their medical providers take action that's not only in the best interest of their patient, but also follows their patient's wishes as well. Thanks. Well, thank you very much. Well, this is an outstanding presentation and also very informative. A lot of information, but very informative information that everyone needs to have, so thank you so much. And our, uh, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Guadalupe or Lupe Palos. And Dr. Palos is Clinical Research Manager at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. She's also Division of Medical Affairs, Department of Cancer Survivorship. And Dr. Palos is a frequent presenter on our programs, and she's going to address making your choices known, talking with your healthcare team and loved ones about your wishes, and resources for end-of-life care. It's my pleasure to turn the program over to Dr. Palos. Thank you, Carolyn, and good afternoon to our listeners and fellow speakers. Today we've been talking about topics that can be sensitive um, to some people or even taboo for others. That is, in some cultures and countries, people believe to say it is to make it true. So one avoids talking about cancer or end of life, and so they will avoid uh, planning for it. Patients, survivors, caregivers, family members, and providers often have different reactions to conversation about cancer in general, and particularly about planning for end-of-life um, and its care. And at times, those discussions can be in complete sync with each other, and that's fine. But at other times, the discussions 
may be completely opposite of each other. That is, uh, the family members and the patient may not agree on the outcomes, or both may not agree with the providers. Whatever it is, there can be some disagreement among the three groups. Now, we know that that usually will lead to frustration, confusion, and, and sometimes just plain silence. So how can we make sure that patients, families, and providers all communicate effectively with each other when planning for a diagnosis of cancer and later on for end-of-life services? In the next few moments, I'll provide an overview of suggestions that may help facilitate communication between the patient, the family members, and the healthcare team, and then I'll summarize by identifying resources available for end-of-life care. We got excellent information about uh, the differences and similarities of palliative care and hospice care. Dr. Coyle gave us some wonderful information about pain and symptom management, very helpful, and, and telling us how to communicate that to our providers. Esquire Wolf reminded us of the importance of knowing our rights and preparing for end of life by having all those important documents in place and making sure our family members and others know where they are. And as we heard, effective communication between patients and the healthcare team is a key factor in making everyone understand an individual's choices and preferences throughout the cancer experience and, and not just waiting at the last moment and being reactive. So many of us struggle to have serious and planned discussions about end-of-life care. So what I'd like to do is begin by talking about how to make certain your choices as a patient are known to your family and health care team. First, it's important to ask for and schedule family conferences as soon as a cancer diagnosis is made. The family conference may include the patients, key family members, and healthcare team members. The benefits include giving patients, family members, and providers an opportunity, opportunity to meet each other face-to-face -to, -face, to talk about specific needs of the patient or their family and their preferences for decision-making related to medical procedures. It's an opportunity to communicate about the patient's condition, treatment, or prognosis if that is something the patient wishes. And then it's also a time to teach the family about clinical care and how it focuses on maintaining the comfort, privacy, and dignity of the patient. Second, compassionate, patient-centered, and family-focused communication is one of the most critical yet underutilized methods to understand each other. Therapeutic relationships that are based on mutual trust must be established between the patient, the family, and the healthcare team. So one way to begin to build that relationship is to identify one member of the family and maybe one from the healthcare team that you as the patient would feel most comfortable with in building a trusting relationship. And for healthcare providers listening on this call, please keep in mind that it's extremely challenging for patients and their families to trust and communicate openly if it's the first time all of you have met. In a recent study I conducted with parents of children with cancer, in the interviews, parents were adamant in telling us, strongly telling us, that meeting a provider for the first time was one of the worst ways to communicate bad news. Third, in discussing your choices, let your healthcare team know who you as the patient would like to participate in your discussion. Is it one key family member or caregiver? Is it your children? Are there certain extended family members? You can also find out then, they'll ask you, would you mind having more than one healthcare team member participate in the discussion? And if so, who would you like to participate from the healthcare team in those discussions? Fourth, when a decision has been made to talk about end-of-life care, 
or any a part of the cancer diagnosis. Remember the timing, the setting, the location, the style of communication are key factors to consider by the patient, the family, and the providers. Fifth, remember there are cultural and spiritual core values that may affect a conversation on cancer diagnosis or end of life. Some of these would include, are based on the patient's practices, beliefs, and values. And they include values toward, for example, worldviews, Western versus non-Western. They would differ in regards to death and dying. There's also individualism or independence versus collectivism or interdependence. We in the medical world value autonomy very much, and yet there may be people that say, you know, I understand I need privacy and confidentiality, but I want my whole family there. There are religious and cultural practices and beliefs and taboos. There's the emotional and physical suffering, as Dr. Coyle described earlier in our call. And then there's a no, uh, the, the acceptance or denial of death, not only from the patient, but also from the family members. So one way to begin this type of conversation to ask about core values would be to ask, would you please let me know if you have practices, beliefs, or values that will affect how we discuss this topic with you and provide care to you. Now I would like to just share a few tips that may help promote effective communication and help uh, plan for the whole cancer diagnosis. One, plan ahead. As early as when the initial cancer diagnosis is made, I think that's been the core message throughout our conference call today. Two, as the patient before initiating any conversations about your care, make your own decisions of what your preferences and wishes are for that care. By having it clear in your mind, you'll be able to effectively articulate your wishes to your family and healthcare team. It's a good idea to open the discussion about your care early in the trajectory of the cancer experience. And if you're speaking specifically about end-of-life care, try to identify situations when the topic may be brought up. For example, um, when a major illness affects the family. Also remember, anyone, you as the patient, the family members, or a member of the healthcare team, has the option to open up the conversation about care and the patient's preferences. Keep in mind that it's important to gather as much information as possible before your conversation, to find an appropriate setting that allows for privacy, comfort, and easy access, confirm or validate that the individual wishes to talk about their care, and a simple way to confirm that is, would you like to talk about whatever it is you want to focus on? Be aware that emotions and reactions to such a topic will vary. Remember to keep an open mind, be an active listener, be calm and supportive, and recognize when it's time to end the conversation. Even with these tips, when we talk about cancer, and particularly the end of life, it's very difficult for many of us. Why? Because in our society, we are not trying to talk openly about death and dying. Many of us feel uncomfortable talking about death. We'd rather talk about cure and living. And sometimes many of our healthcare providers have not received the education or training on how to discuss such things as delivering bad news or talking openly about sensitive topics with our patients. And in addition, we're all unique in our level of comfort discussing these types of topics and in our own views toward our own preparation for dying and death. Nevertheless, it's important to make your choices known. It will help your family and your healthcare team understand your wishes. I would also like to remind our listeners there are resources available online 
in booklets, and at times in places from your community, such as places of worship, hospitals, or libraries. Some of the online resources would include the National Cancer Institute, the American Cancer Society, Cancer Care, of course, and many other sources. NCI has booklets for patients and healthcare professionals, as does the ACS. You can download the booklets or order them often free of, of charge from these organizations. And you'll hear more about cancer care services in a moment from my colleague, Glenn. There are also several training programs for healthcare professionals in communicating bad news or learning specific things about palliative and end-of-life care. The City of Hope, for example, has an end-of-life training program for nurses and social work. So you can see that we are all recognizing the importance and value of being well prepared to discuss these types of topics. Also, don't forget you have access to social workers, faith-based leaders, and other key individuals that would be willing to sit down and share ideas on how to open and proceed the conversation with such a sensitive topic. So in closing, I would just like to say that it's important to plan ahead of time, to discuss your wishes with your family, to prepare important documents such as the advanced directives and others beforehand and not at the last moment, to tie up any unfinished business one may have. This type of preparation may help an individual maintain their own comfort, privacy, and dignity throughout the cancer experience. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Dr. Palos. Really just an extraordinary presentation as always. Very, very uh, centered in terms of some of the issues and um, some of the recommendations for people and the importance of making one's choices known to everyone. That's really important. Thank you so much. And um, our next speaker is Glenn Muche. And Glenn is an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. He's a coordinator at Cancer Care. And he's going to address the free psychosocial services offered by Cancer Care. Glenn? Thank you, Carolyn, and I would like to thank everyone for participating in today's Connect Education Workshop. Uh, in closing, I would like to speak briefly about the services that Cancer Care provides. Um, a lot of things that I'm going to share um, have already been um, addressed by all our speakers, so hopefully um, what I provide will be uh, summation and reinforcement. Uh, the challenges that are presented to us in planning our comfort and care at the end of life often are multifaceted. A core feature, though, of end-of-life care surrounds the quality of life we experience during this period. End-of-life care not only encompasses the physical component, such as pain and symptom and comfort management, but very frequently includes within its scope the emotional and spiritual aspect as well. In order to ensure our quality of life at the end of life, it is important, therefore, to bear in mind that end-of-life care works best and is most effective when it is understood within the framework and context of teamwork. Sometimes, however, it can be difficult to initiate the dialogue and conversation surrounding end-of-life care and navigate the complex network of health care, especially as it pertains to end-of-life. Um, I like to provide uh, some basic tips that may help open doors to effective communication. Uh, first and foremost, as, as a patient, uh, it may be helpful to keep in mind um, that we are consumers of health care. Uh, the best way, therefore, to begin making difficult decisions about end-of-life care is to educate yourself. 
uh, Cancer Care's fact sheet entitled Hospice Care, Quality of Life at the End of Life may assist you in this process of educating yourself. Another Cancer Care fact sheet, Caregiving at the End of Life, may also be helpful. These fact sheets, among many others, can be found on Cancer Care's website, which is www.cancercare.org. Um, bring someone with you to your appointments. Um, it can be helpful to have support, and another person can also serve as a second set of ears. Uh, that person may even be able to think of questions to ask your doctor and recall details about your concerns that you may have forgotten. Uh, prepare a list of questions beforehand. Uh, this will help you remember certain things that may be important to you that otherwise you may forget to ask. Try to make your questions brief and specific. Because your doctor may have limited time, it's important to ask your most important questions surrounding end-of-life care first. Write down the responses your doctor provides. Taking notes will help us remember. It allows us to go back and reflect on what the doctor explained to us about our, our diagnosis and the issues surrounding end-of-life care. Our notes can also afford us an opportunity to concentrate and perhaps take more time to do further research, research if that is needed. Uh, using simple statements such as I statements or I do not understand or being assertive, that is asking the doctor to explain something further if you do not understand what he or she is saying or you do not know what something means can be helpful in maintaining the dialogue about end of life care. Cancer Care offers free individual counseling and support by professional oncology social workers who can walk with you and provide a listening ear. A cancer care social worker can help you sort through the myriad of issues that may surround, for instance, pain management and your quality of life during this time. A social worker can provide guidance to make speaking to your doctor about your wishes surrounding end-of-life care easier. Social workers can offer tips and suggestions to help open doors to effective communication with your doctor. The emotional component of end-of-life care can leave us feeling confused at times and experiencing a wide range of feelings. I really cannot, cannot underestimate the significance, therefore, of individual counseling and support groups. Through individual counseling, cancer care social workers can afford you a safe space to talk about your feelings and provide you and your family an opportunity to process what you may be experiencing. We can learn new strategies in coping through individual counseling and develop ways to ensure our continued coping and adjustment to the physical, psychosocial, and experience, spiritual aspects of the cancer experience, dying, and end-of-life care. The social interaction afforded, offered by support groups can also diminish feelings of isolation and help us cope. Support groups provide a safe, and supportive environment where we not only can share our story and experiences with others, but learn from those who may be experiencing similar feelings, fears, and concerns as well. Support groups afford us a place where we can talk about our cancer, our care, and the array of emotions associated with decisions surrounding end-of-life care. To conclude, end-of-life care can present economic economic challenges as well. Financial assistance is available at Cancer Care. 
Cancer care can help reduce the expenses associated with an array of challenges associated with end-of-life care. In addition, a cancer care social worker can direct you to other resources in your community that may offer financial assistance. Thank you again. Well, thank you very much, Glenn, really, for presenting all the different services that everyone can access um, at no cost from cancer care, so that when the call ends, um, that you all know that you're connected to a whole bunch of services that you can access for help. Now, we do have time for questions. We have lots of time for questions. I'm going to ask Trinitha to bring all of our speakers on board. And if, Trinitha, you would explain to the audience how to queue up for questions, we'll try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get to your question, please call us at our 800 number, 1-800-813-HOPE, and our staff will address your questions. Trinitha? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question is from Beth R. Your question, please. So I'm curious. Um, let's see. Dr. Was it Dr. Coyle? No, it was uh, Deborah Wolf who said that um, wills should go in a safe place but not in a safety deposit box. And I'm curious why not a safety deposit box. Again, every state laws vary, but generally, in order to open a safety deposit box of somebody who's passed away, it requires a court order. And usually, to start a probate proceeding, a person needs the original will. So it's become somewhat of a catch-2020 in that you need the original will to start a probate proceeding, but you need that court order to open the safety deposit box. So generally, to avoid that, I suggest that somebody try and find a safe place, either in their home. Um, so I know in New York and in other states, an original will can actually be filed with the a court that oversees probate. So there's a lot of other options besides a safety deposit box. Excellent. Thank you. Our next question, Teresa? Thank you. Our next question is from Jane S. Your question, please. Uh, my question is this. Is there any accommodation made for those who, who do not understand English well or have different value systems based on their culture? Well, thank you. That's an excellent question. Dr. Palos, would you address that question, please? That is an excellent question. And what we've noted is that we are seeing um, increased services and awareness of the need for services that address uh, the cultural and, and of course, the, some of the religious or spiritual needs of our patients. Usually, or many times, a, a hospital will have uh, translators available. There uh, also, again, with the social workers, the social workers are a good place to begin and letting them know that there may be a language barrier for the patient or the family member, and then they can proceed and try to identify um, people in the hospital that may be able to help. I know that some folks have told me about some services that will translate on the phone, and I can't remember which phone company or whatever, but I believe there's a fee associated with it. But we are becoming more culturally sensitive, and that is a major step in, in helping our patients understand and the family members understand about cancer and the diagnosis and all the clinical care that goes along with it. And it helps us as healthcare professionals to become more sensitive and aware of some of the similarities and then some of the differences among the cultures. Excellent. Thank you. Our next question, please. 
Thank you again, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. We have a question from one of our online participants, uh, Lois. And Lois's uh, question is that um, that she has a friend who's um, who's uh, fast approaching, who's dying actually, and um, who's been a fighter all these years and is still hoping for a miracle. Um, but um, she, her friend doesn't really know what to say to her because she probably will be entering uh, hospice soon, and her friend doesn't quite know what, what she should say in terms of support to her friend. And um, I'm wondering, Nessa, if you'd like to address that? Um, yeah, I, I think that um, uh, the, uh, most of us hope for a miracle, and I think, it's, as was said by the first speaker, you know, you hope for the best and you prepare for the worst. And so I think that usually, um, in my experience, what someone wants to know will come from them. And so, so you answer what do you think is happening, what's important to you. Now, you ask questions of the individual, and they'll tell you um, uh, what they want to know and um, you know, what they're most afraid of in a way. Um, so I think uh, uh, what I tend to do is um, that also I, I hope for a miracle, and I, I hope that too, but let's deal with the here and now. What, what are your needs right now, and how can we, how can we get these needs met for you? And there are dis different sy uh, systems of care to provide that. And perhaps right now, the model of a hospice model of care is where we can get your needs met. And if things change, and if a miracle happens, uh, then we can change your system of care. So I think it, it's, um, everyone has a hope. Human beings need hope in order to live for as long as they're living. Um, but you also, uh, again, uh, need to deal with the here and now, and it's possible to combine those two things. So you don't take away hope. You don't take away the, the hope for a miracle, but you deal with the concrete of what we need to do here and now. And if the situation changes, then the system of care can change. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Van Gotten, do you want to add to that? Because it is an issue, I think, that comes up for many people, um, particularly people don't quite know what to say. Well, I think that the the question about what do I say to someone who is this sick, can I say the wrong thing, uh, will I make her worse, I think is often in the mind of, of the person who's asking the question, and I see it all the time. Um, and I think uh, Nessa Coyle's point about um, it, it's not always, it's not that we have things that we have to say, um, it's being there, um, being open to listening to what's on a person's mind, um, uh, helping them with the concrete things is, is the most important way this, this questioner can be a good friend to this woman who is ill. I think what I would add in addition to what Nessa says, because I'm asked this all the time, um, doctor, uh, well, what about a miracle? And I say, uh, I believe in miracles. I've seen miracles. By definition, they are rare, and they are in God's hands. So um, just as Nessa said, let's focus on what, we, what, what is in our power to do right now. 
Um, the other thing that the questioner said is, well, she's always been a fighter. I would affirm for that. So again, it's something else I hear a lot. Um, Doctor, I'm a fighter. Uh, I can't, you know, we can't stop the chemotherapy. We can't uh, enroll in hospice care because I'm a fighter. And what I say is, of course you're a fighter. And you've always been a fighter. You will always be a fighter. That's who you are. Enrolling in hospice care doesn't mean you're not a fighter. But now we have to fight for different things. We're fighting, you're fighting for quality of life. If we had chemotherapy that worked, we would give it. It's not a question of whether, you, you, um, whether you're a fighter or a loser. The, the, the medication either is working or it's not. But even when the medication is not working, we can fight for other things that are important for you and then turn it back. What's important to you right now? I just love the way Nessa Coyle describes, let's focus on what's here right now. And that's the way this friend can feel like she's helping um, and not feel so afraid. Yes, thank you. And there's another question also similar to this in terms of, and I'm going to ask Glenn if he would address it, um, in terms of um, um, a sister whose brother is, is um, at the end of the journey with cancer and um, also is looking for help with just anticipating grief and, and sadness. And I wonder if you could comment on that, Glenn. Well, I mean, I think first um, it, it's important to uh, recognize and, and, and validate our feelings uh, surrounding someone's dying and to recognize and, and say that, you know, whatever I'm feeling, whatever I'm experiencing is okay and to, you know, validate that and simply allow the feelings to be, you know, what they are. Um, I, I want to add to what was shared earlier, too, is that, you know, I think in, in being with someone who is dying, you know, the gift of presence is so, is so essential. Um, you know, sometimes it's not so much what we say, but who we are and what we do in the midst of all that silence that has the most profound impact on the person who is dying. So, you know, simply being with someone. Um, and also what was brought out, you know, hope, a miracle. You know, you never give up on a hope or a miracle, uh, but it changes. You know, the face of hope, the face of a miracle changes. Excellent. Thank you so much, Glenn. And I, I, hope, I hope that for everyone on this call today that this has been a very helpful call. I also want to recognize for all of you that we all know this is an hour program, and we don't want you to feel that when this program ends that you're all by yourself now to deal with everything. We want you to know that you're now part of a community of support um, and that you can get access to all these services from Cancer Care. We have 45 master's level trained oncology social workers, and they are here to address many of the questions that came up today on the call and to continue that discussion with you. Please do call us at 1-800-813-HOPE. We are here to help you. And um, most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I don't want anyone to feel that you're alone. I want you to know that you're part of the support and that you can access us anytime. We're simply a telephone call away, or you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. I want to thank you all for participating today, and I want to thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may disconnect and have a wonderful day.